You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show. When's autumn start? Or has winter started? No, autumn has started. Mm-hmm. Or as we say in Queensland, fall. <laughs> yeah, because that's actually, you know, the start of the footy season where everyone's fallen down drunk. And, uh, you know, we, we've we actually had a, a good run on the Batuta Advocate uh, radio show, podcast, whatever you want to call it, the last few weeks. Uh, last week we actually had Oscar from Young Henry's, the brewery, explaining to us how they're going carbon neutral using algae. And, of course, the algae then can be relayed and used again for cattle to eat as a feed, particularly when they're in drought or at any point in intensive farming. And the algae, uh, they don't burp out methane. So it, it actually, in turn, becomes a methane credit. Very interesting conversation. I found mm. myself more interested in it than I thought I'd be. And to think people look back on the 1990s as the golden age of this country. Mm. I say it's right now. Now we've got cattle eating algae. And it's a bipartisan support for this project. But today's guest is one we're very excited to have. She's very busy and we you know, wouldn't be able to lock her down if she wasn't in Australia at this very moment. You may have seen her on the news. You may have read about her. You've probably seen photographs of her if you are following any of the stories we're about to talk about today. Today's guest represents Julian Assange. Legal represent- the official legal representation of Julian Assange is her job. She also represents West Papua and their provisional government against the oppression of the Indonesians in international courts right around the world. She also represented Amber Heard against Johnny Depp. And this is just a small number of the many big jobs and cases and causes she's fighting day in, day out around the world at any given time. She's representing Vanuatu in the face of climate change and dispossession. There's so much we can talk about today and whoever else has this studio booked after us, I I apologise because we might run over time. Today we are speaking to the pride of Bomaderry High, (laughs) Jennifer Robinson. Thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Now I need to ask first question, Jennifer. Are you still being underestimated? (laughs) Well, look, I enjoy being underestimated. It's always right. It's always great to prove people wrong. Mm. But no, I think you know, the older you get in the law, the more you're taken seriously. It's an important trait to have in law is to prove people wrong. (laughs) This is very true. So so it looks like you did find your calling. (laughs) We've heard uh, heard your story. I would argue, and I don't want to, um, you know, start off this podcast with extreme flattery, but I would argue you may be our greatest legal export from Australia. And it's a crowded field, I know, but we're going to talk about it today. The range of different things you've worked on in your short career is mind-blowing. Right now, you're in Australia with a book you've just published. You managed to write a book on the side of bouncing in and out of international courtrooms. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you managed to write this so quickly? Because it very, as I was reading it, very current events in this book, and it, and it almost relates to the current news cycle, which I, I just found that mind-blowing. Usually, when someone writes a book about a, something that's happened in the world, it's, you know, looking back, maybe with rose-coloured yeah. glasses. It's yeah. almost very – now, it's almost like I'm reading a long-form essay that's just come out on a news website. Well, the book's called How Many More Women Exposing How the Law Silences Women, uh, and I co-authored it with my colleague, Dr. Kenny Yoshida. The book is about all the ways in which the law silences women. So what we were seeing in our legal practices, I I do media defence work, defending journalists and newspapers. 
But I also increasingly in the post Me Too world was advising domestic violence frontline services, rape crisis centres, the Women's Equality Party who was campaigning in the United Kingdom against sexual harassment in Parliament. The defamation risk in particular, but also all the other ways in which the law was censoring and silencing women activists, as well as journalists, from reporting on stories about gender-based violence. It was really shocking to me, but because we work in the law and we see it, a lot of it doesn't reach the public domain. So we were frustrated by what we were seeing and we we decided, you know, as women were breaking the cultural silence about speaking about their experiences, we saw this legal backlash and it made more visible all these legal tools that are available to silence women. And so we wanted to write about it because there's only so many women we can advise coming into our chambers, but we wanted to start a public conversation about it. Mm. But it was tricky to write, not just because it was current events. And so we were following active cases all over the world. So what we try to show in the book is this is not just happening in Australia and we all know it's happening in Australia or the United Kingdom where I practice or the United States. It's happening everywhere across jurisdictions, geographies and cultures. But it was tricky to write because by their very nature, the cases we're talking about involve very litigious, wealthy and powerful men. Uh, like so the legal risk was huge. Yeah. Now, we're media defence lawyers who were you know, writing a book. We understand the risks, but it was tricky to write. But it was tricky to write because cases kept developing. Yep. And in the end, we didn't really intend to write so much about the Depp case, but the Depp case in the United States was decided as we were finishing the book. Yep. And I had to rewrite a whole chapter because... Amber Heard's case and Johnny Depp's case against the Sun was just one example in a yep. defamation chapter. But because yeah. of what happened in that case, you know, we felt we had to write more. So we were writing right down to the publication date. There was something I learned about the Depp Amber Heard case from you was the very fact that this had almost been settled in England. Well, it had been settled. You'd represented Amber Heard in England against mm-hmm. the Sun. So basically, Johnny had sued The Sun for defamation for an article that was written in which it claimed he was a wife beater. Now, that allegation was made on the basis that Amber had got a restraining order from a judge in California when she divorced him, a domestic violence restraining order. Now, he sued for defamation. and I worked with Amber and the newspaper to prepare all the evidence to defend that on a defense of truth. Mm-hmm. And a judge in the United Kingdom determined that it was true that he was violent towards her on 12 separate occasions. So she is a recognised survivor of domestic and sexual violence, according to the judgment in the United Kingdom. But then he sued her personally in the United States for $50 million, and it went before a jury in Virginia. Televised. Televised live online to create one of the most horrendous spectacles of misogyny and tropes about domestic violence that I've seen in our public discussion in a very long time. And... Unfortunately, before a jury, the male-centric myths that were perpetrated by his legal team in trying to put the case forward worked. It didn't work in front of a judge in the UK, but it worked in front of a jury. And that's one of the recommendations we make in the book, that we we have warnings for juries in criminal trials about domestic and sexual violence warning juries not to listen to the old tropes about sexual violence. Or the Um, memes, the memes that were coming out. Honestly, I had people calling me during that. I was getting, I mean... Amber received horrific online trolling, death and rape threats. I got the same as her lawyer, even though I didn't represent her in the United Kingdom, in the United States, sorry, I represented her in the UK. But I had friends calling me saying, oh, my kid's on TikTok and he's coming out saying that women are liars, women are gold diggers, all these things that we should be educating our children against because of the debt trial. And so the silencing effect that that has, and this is the point that I make to people a lot, One in three women in this country and around the world have suffered sexual violence. So we all know women who have suffered this. We all know women. How many of those women are going to come to you or report their abuse if they've heard you vilify, ridicule, 
speak as horribly as people did about Amber coming forward. Mm. And I know anecdotally from colleagues who are working in cases with domestic violence victims around the world, I get contacted all the time saying women are being threatened, saying don't be an Amber, no one's going to believe you, and women who are scared to take forward their cases because of what they saw happen to Amber. And so the chilling effect of that case is global in effect and really problematic and we've got a lot of work to do to work against it. Sounds like a very hard book to write, as you said, like ongoing cases and the case was changing as you were writing it. There was one thing, though, that I saw that I found um, remarkable in your book, which wasn't necessarily a current thing. Um, We're talking like the last 10 years. But when the Me Too movement first kicked off, when it all happened, Harvey Weinstein, all these things were happening. Mm. A lot of people's minds were blown about, you know, the scale and the, the, you know, the occurrence, particularly men, obviously, had no idea. But there's almost like two graphs going. One's going up, one's going down. You've never heard this many claims and you've never seen so few people actually followed up on it. And one thing you had articulated was that the lawyers evolved and the defences evolved in the wake of Me Too. So less people started getting actually charged for harassment or, or whatever because, you know, the game changed. And one thing I did see, you know, we get into the point of NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, where mm. victims can't even tell their therapists about what's happened to them. Were you seeing this happening in real time or was it something you just, you know, uh, I'd love to hear your your take on all that. Well, I, I actually met with Zelda Perkins very early. She was the whistleblower who blew the whistle on Weinstein's NDA. So she spoke out in breach of the NDA that she had signed about what had happened to her and to her colleague Rowena Chu around the Me Too time when it was all breaking. And and she took a huge legal risk. She could have been sued for breach of confidence. The newspaper, the Financial Times could have been sued. But thanks to her speaking out in risk of being sued, uh, we started to understand so much more about non-disclosure agreements. And I had seen it in my practice, cases I can't talk about because, you know, we advise clients will come to us and seek advice about the terms of their NDA wanting to speak out, but actually the cost risk for women challenging NDAs once they've Mm. signed them is huge. And you need only look in the United Kingdom, for example, and this is all public now, but a bunch of employees of Philip Green had signed NDAs and the Daily Telegraph wanted to report their stories, including sexual harassment and racist comments. And he sued for breach of confidence, the newspaper, and it cost hundreds of thousands of pounds for the newspaper to challenge that. And in the end, you know, it was broken by parliamentary privilege, but uh, that was just at the preliminary stage. What individual woman can afford those kinds of legal fees to release themselves from an NDA? And what we see time and time again is that when you've suffered sexual harassment or you've been and bullied at work and you're sort of a settlement is given and you're sort of pushed out the door, you're traumatised by what's happened, you just want to get on with your life and you sign this NDA. And sometimes it takes women a little bit of time after they've left that situation to start to feel like, actually, I feel like I need to talk about this because I want to protect other people from this happening again. But it's too late. And so it's it's so frustrating, like the amount of women I've spoken to who want to challenge their NDAs but can't afford to do it. And, you know, and I understand some women want an NDA. They don't want to speak publicly about it. They don't want people to know what happened to them. And that should be their choice too. But the problem is, is... You know, once these are signed, women are in these, what I desc- what we describe in the book is silos of silence. So in the courts, it's a chicken and egg problem because the judges in the courts, if you go to, go to the court to challenge an NDA, they'll say, well, the right to uphold a contract outweighs her right to free speech. She signed a contract. She was paid for it. So we're going to protect his right to have a, an enforceable contract. But they do say, well, if he's a repeat offender, 
then the public interest might tip in favour of allowing her to speak. But how do you know if every woman who's been abused yeah. by him has signed an NDA, how do you possibly know? Yeah. Or someone's got to take the risk or a bunch of them have got to take legal risk to, to come forward. So it's really tricky. Yeah. So the only pathway really at the moment to be released from these is essentially finding a pro bono lawyer to take you on. Not even a pro bono lawyer because the adverse cost risk of what you would have to pay him if sure. you lost yeah. is so huge. So that's the problem. Even if you find a pro bono lawyer, like someone like me who does way too much pro bono work, it doesn't protect you from the adverse cost risk. And so if you sign an NDA and you choose to break it, he can sue you, get an injunction to stop you from saying it, and you've got to fight it in the court. So you need the legal means to be able to do that. And if you speak out and it's already out in the public before he can get an injunction, he can sue you for damages and take back whatever, depending on the terms of the contract, potentially take back whatever you were paid in compensation for the sexual harassment you suffered. It's appalling. So they can take back the settlement? Yeah. Under certain contracts, clawback yep. provisions they're called. But what would happen if you didn't have it? Could you just declare bankruptcy? Like, is there a point where it becomes criminal and you can go to jail and stuff like that? Look, it depends on the individual circumstance of the case. Of course, you could declare bankruptcy, but at the same time, it's not necessarily going to help you to no. be able to speak. And, and declaring bankruptcy has all kinds of ramifications depending on what your profession is. So, yeah. you know, it's not... It's uh, it's just I it's just urge ruining your life. Yeah. urge anyone who is has a non disclosure agreement put before them in any kind of contract to take legal advice because once you sign it it's very difficult to get out of it. Yeah. Now, how many more women is in households right around the country and around the world right now, and it's doing its job, like you just said, just that piece of advice you said then seek legal counsel before signing an NDA. But there's a lot of things in there that kind of were sitting in front of us all, hiding in plain sight. Uh, about the way we live and about the way people in positions of power operate. It's definitely a legacy you're leaving with this line of conversation and interrogation of, as I said, Me Too or just uh, gender-based violence. But it's a small percentage of your highly decorated (laughs) career. And I want to talk about that now and and how you got to where you are, where you're writing books like this. Bombardary High, Mm -hmm. one of 40 cousins. Yep. (laughs) On one side of the family. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Good, uh, good South Coast stock. Good Catholic family. Yeah, I was, I, was about, I, I was assuming as much. How did you get to where you are? Like, I mean, it is a short career, like I said, but you've gone all around the world and worked on a whole number of different causes and cases. What happened? It was Bombardary High School. You had law on your mind? It wasn't really. I actually was studying um, Indonesian at high school and I loved my language studies at Bombardary High. And I wouldn't be where I am today without public education, which is why I'm such a huge advocate for protecting, investing in and supporting public education in this country. So I had the benefit of learning Indonesian and I went off to Indonesia as part of a school trip, which was well outside my parents' financial means, but we saved up to allow me to be able to go. And it completely changed my perspective on the world and on life. And created or sort of sparked this curiosity for the world that then when I was you know I got my marks back in the HSC and I did well um, I wanted to go and do Asian studies at the ANU my mum was like please do a vocational degree (laughs) but I'd become interested so law was the choice and but I'd become interested in East Timor because I was studying learning Indonesian at high school this was I finished high school in 98 and so this was the year that Australia led the peacekeeping yeah. force into East Timor. It was in the news. Exactly. Yeah. And so I was learning about East Timor in my language studies and following the news about Australia putting an end to Indonesian war crimes. And so I had this very naive snapshot of Australian foreign policy. So I actually went to uni thinking I'd like to become a diplomat. 
and represent Australia. Because we're the good guys. Because we're the good guys, right? <laughs> Forgetting that since 1975 we totally ignored Indonesia's <laughs> unlawful occupation and participated in it by stealing their oil. So, yeah. and so anyway. in World War II we <laughs> evacuated and didn't think they would need any help against the might of the Imperial Japanese Army. <laughs> Precisely. So anyway, um, soon after going to law school, I realised that Australian foreign policy in general was not reflected by what we did in 1998 for East Timor. And so it was during my time at the ANU and my year living in Indonesia as part of my Asian Studies degree that I went out to West Papua and that's really what sparked. I was always interested in human rights because of what I was reading about East Timor and I wanted to do something to help and I thought diplomacy was the way to do that and then I realised actually it was being a lawyer. Yeah. I can only just imagine a young kid, South Coast family, probably wouldn't have left town, probably wouldn't have gone to... Most maybe don't I, have passports in yeah, my family, no. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, you know, a trip to Sydney is seeing the world. Yeah. You end up in Indonesia, uh, which I can only imagine you loved, um, you know, got to see another country, a completely different and not too far away from home. And yeah. you got to see all of these cultural traits and interesting things that come with Indonesia. And it's and a language that you're able to pick up quite quickly. Yeah, yeah so I speak heard. fluent Indonesian yeah. from my yeah. time at the Bagus. ANU and Bomadari High. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, you, at the same time, you're learning about Indonesia's war crimes. I mean, th- yes. that, that must have been an interesting, just that juxtaposition between what you saw and what you learned. And I'm guessing what you, I mean, I know what it's like. On your first trip, you're like, I'm going to move here. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was exactly what I wanted to do and part yeah. of why I went to the ANU to do Asian studies so yeah. I could go and live there yeah. for a year. Mm. It gave me the ability to do that. But I love Indonesia and I love the people. And so I have a very uh, conflicted view of Indonesia. I think it is a remarkable, diverse place. Mm. The people are very welcoming. So in many ways, when I was at university, I was kind of held up as the, an ambassador for Australia-Indonesia cross-cultural studies. Yeah. But then what I saw on the ground in West Papua and my work on that issue ever since, it's a shame, but I can't go back to Indonesia really because of that work. And and so I have a very mixed view. So while I'm a huge advocate for Australians better understanding our biggest neighbour and how important that is and that we should learn Indonesian at schools and I'm glad that I did and I'm a product of, you know, Keating and Yeah, that was Keating's big big Australia push, right? Exactly, and and so I'm grateful to Paul Keating for that. I speak Indonesian because of that, which has been a huge benefit to me, not just in opening my mind to the world, but also in my work. Yeah. Can you please educate us? Maybe in North Queensland, certain parts of Brisbane, you'll see a free West Papua sign. You'll see that. And a lot of people in their mind would think these hippies, free Tibet, free West Papua, like they'd think it's just we another... We did see a lot of it too in Belfast. Oh, yeah, in Belfast. They're obviously, they don't, they don't, there's not a cause they won't jump on. <laughs> but um, it does come across as a bumper sticker, right? Yeah. And uh, it is. Often, you see them around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What did you see on the ground and what is still happening on the ground? Um, so I went out there as a 21-year-old student, law student and... I went there because I was due to go and work in East Timor and this was 2002 and my academic supervisor said, no, this is your year in Indonesia studies, so you've got to stay within Indonesia. Why don't you go to West Papua? And I remember thinking, why do I not know about this? I'd studied three years at the ANU, the best academic institution in this country and arguably the world to study Asia-Pacific studies. I had studied every kind of contemporary politics subject. I was learning high-level Indonesian. How had I not learnt anything about what was happening in West Papua Mm. and that sparked my interest and so I started hanging out with West Papuan students on my campus in Jogjakarta in central Java and they were starting to tell me a little bit more about it but at that time there was very little information available on the internet there was very little written about it journalists were banned from going there 
And so I went out to volunteer with this little human rights NGO that was documenting Indonesian war crimes and human rights abuse. So West Papua was a Dutch colony that was administered separately from Indonesia. On the same effective island as Papua New Guinea. Yeah, so it's, yeah. Uh, it's the western yeah. half of the island of New Guinea. Yeah. The eastern side was colonised by the Germans, taken over by the British, then Australia administered it, brought them to independence in the 70s. So that's what is today Papua New Guinea. Yeah. On the other side of the island is West Papua. West Papua was a Dutch colony, which Dutch, was administered, Dutch East Indies which was administered yeah. separately from the rest of the Dutch East Indies. Really? Yes, yeah. West New Guinea. When Indonesia got its independence, the Dutch kept West Papua and were put West Papua on the non, non-self-governing territories list, like Papua New Guinea was, like many other colonies around the world were, and they were intent on bringing them to independence. So the, the West Papuans had a flag, they had a national parliament. Australian diplomats even went to the inauguration of the West New Guinea Parliament in 1961. But then Indonesia, Indonesia went into conflict with the Dutch and said, we want the territory, we say it's ours, and invaded. And basically, because of Cold War politics at the time, America stepped in and said, Australia was going to go to war with the Netherlands to protect this non-self-governing territory, West New Guinea. Where there are fuzzy wuzzy angels who helped us in the Second World War, let it be said. And... Australia took a step back and followed the US line and there was a, an agreement called the New York Agreement that was put in place in 1962. And under that agreement, West Papua was supposed... It was the first ever UN-administered territory, so the UN came in to administer the territory, like East Timor had been many years later. So they were supposed to get this referendum yeah. based on universal suffrage, a democratic referendum on whether to be independent or to remain as part of Indonesia. And the Dutch were backing this. The Dutch the that, Dutch wanted them to be independent. The Dutch wanted them to in, be independent. Mm. They knew they wanted to be independent, and so that was that was what they got into the agreement brokered by the US. So Indonesia took over the territory, but was supposed to give them this vote. There was never a vote. Yep. They basically rounded up 1,022 leaders and forced them to vote in front of guns, you know, walk over this line for independence or stay right there for Indonesia yeah. and you know, the outcome if you step over the line. Yeah. So they're unlawfully occupied yep. and have been since since the 60s. And since then you see like mass human rights abuse, torture, rape, killings, uh, internal displacement. There are so many West Papuan refugees in camps over the border in Papua New Guinea who, are, who have historically been stateless and not properly looked after. It's a crisis and, you know, they have the right to self-determination under international law. They should be their own country. And when I went out to... West Papua, as a student, I was working on the trial of a political prisoner who was the leader of the West Papuan independence movement, Benny Wenda, and I saw firsthand, I was at his trial, I saw firsthand how due process was abused and how the politics of the case was so much bigger than whatever was happening in court. And so I saw firsthand, I was interviewing rape victims, torture victims, and saw what was happening, and it was shocking to me. It was shocking to me that it was happening right here on Australia's doorstep. It was shocking to me. Less than 100 k's from North Queensland. Exactly. Yeah. It's shocking to me that nobody knew about it. It's shocking that I didn't know about it and I that it wasn't being reported. And still it's underreported. So it's really difficult for journalists to get in there. But I've been working on it ever since. And Benny later escaped from prison after I left, not long after I left the country. And I helped him and his family go to the UK where they campaigned. And he's since been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Really? Mm. Yeah. Two times, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I just want to talk a little bit more about this. In terms of what is life like on the ground in West Papua, and I'd like to also know about Indonesia as a concept. Mm. I mean, the Dutch and the Germans, you know, had their fun colonising that part of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and then they leave and they had the 
generosity to say we'd like you to be independent after we leave. Indonesia, was it in any point a puppet government? Was it at any point installed by colonists? Or was, this, was, this, was Indonesia in itself actually an independence movement? Well, Indonesia did have its own independence movement, but Indonesia is a construct. I mean, Indonesia is is a construct of colonialism. Yeah. So it is the Dutch East Indies. It is a, a bunch of islands that were put together because of colonisation. And so, you know, Benedict Anderson talks about the imagination. So it's, you know, Indonesia, when they got their independence, adopted Malay as its national language because there was no national language. There was no language yeah. that unified all of these diverse islands, uh, cultures and peoples who were brought together under the Dutch East Indies. But West Papua was always different and is different, ethnically, linguistically, even in terms of religion. What was shocking to me, actually, and what was quite confronting to me as a young Australian going there was how I saw the the racism of Indonesians towards West Papuans and how similar the stereotypes were that I heard them speak, the way they spoke about West Papuans, very much what I'd heard in Australia when when you hear white Australians speak about First Nations people. Rednecks so, talking about the yeah. Aboriginal stereotypes. Exactly, yeah. mm. exactly. It, 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 was, it was shocking to me. So colonisation and, and, the, and the stereotypes, the, the pejorative stereotypes about Indigenous peoples who were colonised, the similarities between them across cultures is interesting to me. Universal. Yeah. 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 I mean, you, you see, you hear the Native Americans get the same treatment. The, exactly. You know, so well, it is. It is a form. It's a. It's ongoing colonization in our region, mm. and I believe we have a moral obligation. Well, we have an obligation under international law. Since then, I've been working with Benny to develop the international case for West Papua's self determination, and the, the case is clear. I appeared in the International Court of Justice for Vanuatu in the Chagos Islands proceedings, and the judgment in that case makes clear the position. The legal principle set down in that case makes clear the position that West Papua is unlawfully occupied. And under international law, Australia has an obligation to assist West Papua to achieve their self-determination. Well, it's interesting that you say that like how this big archipelago was put together to form a country, but then you've got the first two presidents. Um, they were ultra-nationalists. Ultra-nationalists. I mean, but like how, how can you be an ultra-nationalist of... Like thou- recently invented thousands of different <laughs> cultural groups. Well, Indonesia's national sort of slogan, or I don't know what the correct phrase is for it, but it's on their coat of arms, is Beneka Tunggal Ika. And what that means is, is unity and diversity. Mm. And so, th- I mean... Which look, makes you feel warm and fuzzy. Uh, it makes you feel warm and fuzzy, but in, in real terms, um, for West Papuans, for people in Arche, for the East Timorese, uh, there wasn't much unity no. <laughs> in that diversity. No. There was oppression in that... And what is the interest? What is the interest in keeping, you know, I, I look at something like Northern Ireland and you can see they want to keep that there because they want to look strong. The, the, the UK want to keep Northern Ireland, even mm-hmm. if it is costing them a bomb. Right. Is there gold? Is there oil in West Papua? Absolutely. What is, okay. So <laughs> West Papua has the largest tract of rainforest outside of Brazil and the Congo. It is also has the largest gold and copper mine in the world. And the contract for that gold and copper mine, you will not be surprised, was signed between the US and Indonesia two years before West Papuans were given the vote for independence. So we all know what the Americans thought that outcome was going to look like. And it's the natural resources in West Papua fuels Indonesia's economy. So there is a huge economic interest in, in maintaining that territory and the unlawful occupation of that territory. And nationalists, the Sukarno, Suharto nationalists, would defend a phrase about Indonesia is that it is part West Papua is part of that's part of their imagined story of of Indonesia which is just not true you look at the history of it it's just not true so what I'm seeing now in your career you know we opened with um, how many more women but at this point you're very much 
involved in your story that we've covered so far, which we, <laughs> we, this might be a three, four, five, six parter. Um, <laughs> you're very much involved in Asian law or Asian relations or Asian studies. Very much. Just because, you know, this is our region. And, yeah. and I'm so for me, I was very interested in the Asia Pacific and I've actually come back to it in my career in this sort of yeah. this this part of my career but I was very interested in, in Indonesia and the region and human rights in the region so that's really where I started because that was as a 21 year old living yeah. out there yeah but so how do you get from our region which is still very much your cause you know yeah. what's happening in our region but just just north of Queensland how do you get from there to London how do you get from there to representing Mr. Worldwide Julian Assange <laughs> um, who's I mean, he's a North Queensland boy, technically. He's in our region too. But, um, yeah, born in Townsville. Yeah. But he's, um, you know, he, he represents very much a Northern Hemisphere kind of story in terms of his public profile as WikiLeaks. Um, that was very much not strictly centred around the Indonesian uh no, I mean, Asian Julian's story is very much a global story, yeah. very, very global. But so I, after my year in Indonesia, I had I had to have a year off because I was so traumatised by what I'd seen and I went to the UK and helped Benny Wender and his family settle in over there, get their refugee status. And then I travelled around for a bit to think about what I really wanted to do because I was so disillusioned by what I'd seen. Uh, and then I came back to the ANU and I decided I wanted to be a human rights lawyer and it's funny, once you figure out what your passion is and what your yeah. purpose is for your law degree, it makes the law degree so much easier. Yeah. So I can't, for all the law students out there who are battling through their degrees, I hear, I, I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> My first three years of uni were the same. Um, but I came back and I was like, right, I want to do, do international human rights law. I want to do this. And I ended up winning a Rhodes Scholarship to go to Oxford. So I went off to Oxford after my degree and Benny and Maria, the West Papuan family, were living in Oxford. So... I did my master's there and started working with Jeffrey Robertson, now KC, not QC, um, who I had read about in books and was sort of a bit of a, a hero to me, who was a lawyer that I could see who was out there doing the kinds of work that I wanted to do. You would have been too young to see him on TV, but he was also like a, a late night TV show host in Australia. For yeah, the hypotheticals. <laughs> I know I never watched it as a kid, but um, Everybody raves about the show yeah. and and it was brilliant. They should bring it back. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I started working with Jeffrey and through working with Jeffrey throughout my academic studies, I ended up starting a practice law in London. I started out as a solicitor in, in England and, you know, I was representing the New York Times and CNN and big media organisations in defending defamation cases and all kinds of media law and then WikiLeaks came along. So I remember I remember Jeffrey Robertson rang me one day and this was this was long before we met Julian and he said, what do you know about this bloke, Julian Assange? And I said, well, he's Australian. That's I know that much yeah. about him. And Jeffrey said to me, you know, he's publishing this material. So they'd published, by that stage, they'd published Collateral Murder, the video showing Americans killing Thing civilians and, and the journalists. The Reuters journalist, yeah. Yeah, the Reuters journalist. They just released the Afghan war material. Yeah. And Jeff was like, we should represent him. He's, you know, the US are going to go for him. And... How do we contact him? And I was like, I'm pretty sure Julian Assange doesn't have a mobile phone. No. Anyway, Jeff wrote an op-ed about why why it was important that we defend Julian and that Australia defends Julian because he's exercising his right to free speech. And Julian contacted him out of the blue. Because he reads everything that's ever gone out on the internet. <laughs> he does. <laughs> well, he did before he went to prison, yeah, yeah. yeah, and was cut off from the internet. So, yeah, so that's how it came about. And Where was he based at this point? Julian was not based anywhere at this point. He was... Basically, he'd been warned that he was going to be tracked down by the American government and he was very much living under the radar. But I met him first in London 
in September 2010 and became his lawyer soon after that yeah. with Jeffrey and I walked him into the police station in December 2010 and ever since then he's been under some form of restriction on his liberty so in high security prison under house arrest in the Ecuadorian embassy and now in Belmarsh prison. How did the Ecuadorian embassy come about? We all knew the story but no one really knew how it came about. It was just, I mean, by, by the time he became a household name, mm. like a universal household name, he was living inside the Ecuadorian embassy and no one really asked why. Well, I would argue he became a household name in 2010 through the WikiLeaks publications yeah. because those publications touched every country in yeah. the world. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time we saw a media organisation, and WikiLeaks is a media organisation, not traditional, but a new media organisation, uh, not mainstream. Basically, through the publication of that material, for which WikiLeaks won the Most Outstanding Contribution to Journalism Award from the Walkleys in 2011, the publications that year was Collateral Murder, which we mentioned, the Afghan War Logs, the Iraq War Logs, and the US Diplomatic Cables. And it's the first time we've seen a global collaboration on a big data release. So we now see it all the time, Panama Papers, Pen, yep. you know, yeah. the, with ICIJ, but WikiLeaks pioneered that. And yep. so the reporting on the US diplomatic cables in particular happened in every single country around the world. Yep. And what's interesting to me when I travel to go to different countries, so if I'm in India or Pakistan or Mexico, Julian Assange is a hero. Okay. And I am considered a hero for representing him. Yeah. Australians ought to understand that Julian is globally renowned for what he did and for what he's now in prison for. And so I think that's really important to remember. But the Ecuadorian embassy came about because... So at the end of 2010, when I started representing Julian, uh, the US government under Obama started a grand jury investigation into the WikiLeaks releases. So Chelsea Manning was being put on trial. In the course of those proceedings, she admitted having released the information to WikiLeaks and has since had a, her sentence commuted by Obama. So she's a, she's out of prison. And yet the Australian publisher who received the information and published it is, you know, facing 175 years in prison. But at that time, so when he went into the Ecuadorian embassy, he was sought for extradition to go to Sweden. We were concerned that there was a sealed indictment from the United States and that the moment he would be taken into custody, he would be at risk of being sent to the United States. So he sought asylum inside the Ecuadorian embassy. He was there for seven and a half years. And the day he was kicked out of the embassy and arrested by British police, he was served with a US extradition request, which is the very thing we'd been warning about for, you know, 10 years. I want to talk about the assassination attempts. Yeah. This is when it, for me, I realised that this was, this is where we were at. To the Mm -hmm. point where, was it the CIA? CIA. The CIA were trying to find a way to have him snuffed. Mm-hmm. What did you learn and how did that come to be? So we, obviously being Julian's lawyer, it is we have been taking security measures for a very long time. WikiLeaks actually pioneered the use of encryption in journalism. Journalists were not using encryption to protect themselves or their sources before WikiLeaks. So Julian is also should be thanked for that. But we were taking those measures and we were very aware of the risk of unlawful surveillance and other forms of, you know, intelligence activity around the work that, that we were doing. So we were we were always concerned it was happening, but you don't ever really know. You can't really know. And it wasn't until there was a whistle after Julian was arrested, a whistleblower came forward from within the embassy, the Ecuadorian embassy. And there's evidence of this in the extradition proceedings, so I'm not saying anything that's not already public, but just people tend not to know about it, which is a shame. So thank you for asking. Basically came out saying that the security company that was employed by the Ecuadorians to protect Julian was gathering information about him and us as his lawyers and giving it to the CIA. Now, 
Soon after he was arrested, we also learned through a Yahoo News investigation and from 30 different government sources confirming the story that the CIA had been plotting to kidnap or kill Julian in the United Kingdom. So we have an, an award-winning Australian journalist and publisher facing extradition to the United States with their intelligence services plotting to kidnap and kill him in the United Kingdom. When this story came out, it was everything that we suspected might have been happening and worse. And I remember thinking, surely this is it. This is the story that makes the Australian government stand up and say, enough. This has to be put to an end. This is the kind of stuff that if Russia was doing it, to an American journalist, people yeah. would be up in arms. I mean, it's, we're talking embassies. We're talking going into embassies and that's literally the Khashoggi story. There were discussions mm. of leaving the door, of Julian being poisoned in the embassy. There were discussions about leaving the door open accidentally to allow someone to come in and kill him. I mean, this is what we've since learned. Mm. And you cannot make this up. It's yeah. like a... I have been living in a spy novel for the yeah, past that's decade. What, that's what it, that's when it clicked for me. I was like, "This is a spy novel." I mean, and what would they do? They'd just think that they'd just do it in a way that no one was really to blame for it, or would America even claim it? Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? But yeah. what's interesting is when the story was published, Mike Pompeo, who was then the head of the CIA, didn't deny it and said that those who'd, who'd spoken to the media should be prosecuted under the Espionage Act. <laughs> so pretty much confirming that what they said yeah. was true and classified information. <laughs> yeah. So what are the legal instruments that the Australian government has to protect Julian at the moment? The Australian government could be exercising diplomatic protection over this Australian citizen. I feel like a broken record. I have been saying since 2010 two things. One, the Australian government needs to stand up for this Australian citizen And two, this precedent that's being pursued against an Australian citizen and an Australian publisher is going to be used against the rest of the media. So the media needs to stand up for Julian because this will be used against them. And instead of doing that, in the early days of the case, you saw the media othering Julian and putting him over here and making out that he's somehow different. But of course, once the indictment came through, everybody, the Washington Post, the New York Times, suddenly realise that actually this is criminalising journalistic activity and the same kinds of activity that they engage in all day, every day. And because we had a president, President Trump, who called the media the enemy of the people, they suddenly realised that this is a precedent. Whatever political protection they thought they might have had was gone under President Trump. So happily I can say now that most mainstream media organisations and free speech groups are with us and say that this indictment should be shut down because they see their own self-interest. This will be used against others. And finally, we have an Australian government. So after, you know, a decade of successive governments doing nothing. Indifference. And frankly, the Australian governments, those governments failure to take action in Julian's case allowed the US to do what they're doing. If Australia had raised concern earlier, we would not have seen this indictment in my view. But we finally have a prime minister and a government that has said enough is enough and want to see the case resolved. So I'm very much hoping that we will see a resolution and soon. What's, I mean, there's a lot of smearing, obviously. I mean, aside from the CIA trying to kill him, which is uh, one way of silencing him, there's also the smearing from the earliest stages of Julian Assange mm. was painted as this sickly, pale internet sleuth. Yeah. You know, um, there's a whole lot of allegations against him. There was a whole lot of, they talk a lot about the cult upbringing. Um, <laughs> yeah. What's he like as a person? Look, Julian is... If he was sitting here with us, he's got a great dark sense of Mm humour. 
He's incredibly smart. He's one of my favourite people to debate with. Mm-hmm. He's he's an Aussie. Mm-hmm. He, he is Aussie and he's, uh, you know, he takes the piss. He's he's great. But obviously he's not all the things that you read in the media. He can be very difficult. There's no denying that. He's been diagnosed with Asperger's. That's out in the proceedings and as part of um, our concern about the nature of the detention he'll face. But he's, a, he's great. He's, he's good fun and he's brave. He's so brave and is a great thinker. Look at what he's achieved with WikiLeaks. It's changed the shape of journalism. Mm-hmm. It's changed the way we talk about journalism. We didn't even talk about the right to know before WikiLeaks. Yeah. And this is all because of him and he's an Aussie who mm-hmm. you know, started this little organisation in Melbourne. So it's kind of, it's wild actually yeah. like when I think about it and I look back and I've said this before it was really interesting to me watching what happened in 2010 with these publications and the aftermath was that a small group of people led by this Australian shook an imperial power to their core. Yeah. And I think that's pretty Yeah. I mean amazing, we, we, pretty incredible. Yeah, certainly punch above our weight when it comes to that kind of stuff Australians. Yeah. I mean we've we've got you Jen. We've also got uh, Julian Assange, we've got Rupert Murdoch. I mean, those two people basically decided the 2016 election or could have if they wanted to, you know what I mean? For someone like you, I imagine you meet heads of state. Mm. What is the exchange like when you're looking at someone who very much looks and feels like a real person and you say, hey, what's happening to Julian Assange doesn't feel very democratic or humane? How do they respond to you in that moment? Well, it depends on the leader. Yeah. So there are many leaders around the world that support Julian Assange. So President Lula of Brazil has spoken out publicly, has, has said that he's raised it with Biden. The president of Mexico, AMLO, has raised it. In fact, other governments have done more yeah. than many of the Australian governments have done in, until Prime Minister Albanese. So, you know, I think, I think there's a huge amount of support for Julian globally, mm. both from global leaders, particularly in Latin America, from countries who benefited from the information that was released. So for many countries who have suffered because of US imperialism and have a very recent memory of the role of the United States. There's not many yeah. left that haven't. Right. So so there are a lot of people who are very sympathetic to Julian and are grateful to him for showing the world yeah. what US diplomacy and what US power does. And so those countries are very much when I say like, you know, you know, I think in Australia and the UK and the US Julian has been, like you say, very much vilified. Yeah. But when you go to different countries around the world who have very recent history, lived experience of U.S. imperialism, he is he is considered a hero. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we've tackled three, I guess, three pillars of your amazing career, Jen. Tell us what it's like when you go home. I mean, you've got these these stories. You kind of keep it a bit under wraps, you know, when you're... <laughs> <laughs> down there, Mom and Oh, down oh, in yeah. Berry. So I grew up in Berry, <laughs> and I still go home to my dad's horse farm down there. And no, I mean, Dad will always say, "How's Julian going?" Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but I don't always tell my family everything about what's going on. One, I can't. A lot of it's um, privilege, but I don't like to worry them too much. Mm. And I think if I talk too much about, oh, Dad, guess what? The CIA is plotting to kidnap and kill my client. <laughs> um, it does. Co- <laughs> it is cause for worry. He's like, "What's happening to you, then?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. No, I think I give my, I think I've given my parents enough sleepless nights. <laughs> yeah, when you moved to West Papua when yeah, you were exactly. nineteen. <laughs> no, they definitely did not know what was going on in West Papua. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, there's a lot going on, um, and very impressed as always by the work you do, Jen. Thank you for joining us on the Batuta Every Podcast. We are going to get so much feedback. You've blown so many minds today. 
I hope you enjoyed that sitting there in the tractor or on the commute, wherever you are. It's all true. What she's saying is true because she represents these people. So um, get that book too. How many more women in all good bookstores and online? Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. <laughs>